We've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel as a church for the last month or so. And um, instead of this morning going to a kind of a more traditional classic Easter passage, um, we're just going to stick right in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, because it is a chapter that points us to um, what Christ did and why we needed Christ to come. And so it points us to the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done. And so we're going to just continue in our series in 1 Samuel today. Um, and so this morning, my, my hope and my, and my goal and my aim today is to, to share with you the message of Christ um, through the Old Testament, to share with you the message of, of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, and that you would hear the gospel today, and you would hear the message of Christianity on Easter. I think that there are many of us that may think we know what the message of Christianity is, think we may know what, what Christ did on the cross, but it's my hope today from the scriptures to communicate that clearly, that all of us may leave today knowing what he's done and knowing what the message of the cross is. So 1 Samuel chapter 8 today, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. And, uh, and then we will jump on in. So we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8. It will also be on the screens as well. 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's word says this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Nice. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, they've been forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. We pray and ask for the Lord's help 
as our teacher this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are risen from the grave, that you are not a God um, who is made with hands. You are a, a living God, an eternal God who has eyes to see us and ears to hear us and a heart to pursue us. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us today. Would you show us who Christ is through your scriptures? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in high school, or uh, sorry, middle school, when I was in middle school, I had a friend, uh, and his name was Chad, and Chad was really cool. If you knew Chad, you would have thought the same thing. Chad was a really cool dude, especially because he was a skater, and he was a really good skater. And uh, he was one of those kids that kind of transferred into our school in sixth grade, which made him extra cool. And so everybody wanted to be like Chad. And especially me, I wanted to be like Chad. And uh, Chad became really good friends with one of my good friends whose name was Mike. And so now Chad and Mike became skaters. And I was kind of left out. I wasn't a skater. I didn't know how to skate. But I wanted to be like Chad. And I wanted to be like Mike. And so I started to do everything that they did. I started to um, wear the skater clothes. I, I started to buy, you know, the skater shoes. I, I bought a subscription to a skateboarding magazine to cut out the pictures and put them on my binder because that's what <laughs> real skaters did, all right? I just, I wanted to be a skater. I bought, my, I bought a skateboard. I asked for it for Christmas. My parents gave me a skateboard. And I just, I knew what it was like to feel left out and I didn't like that. And so I wanted to be a skater like Chad. And so I started skating, but the problem was I wasn't very good at skateboarding. I could do a couple things here and there. I was better than the neighborhood kids, but I was no skater. I was what they would affectionately call a poser. That's what I was. Um, but I, I, I was committed to it until one day, uh, first day of spring break or first day of winter break for my, uh, my, in my seventh grade year, I was skateboarding to show off to my neighbors how good of a skater I was. And it was raining and I thought I would jump over a, a ramp and a pile of bricks that I crafted to show off how good of a skater I was. Except like I told you, I was a poser. I wasn't a good skater. And so, of course, I, I slipped and I fell and I braced my fall with my arm and I snapped my arm in half. And if I could roll up these sleeves, I could show you I have these massive scars on both sides of my arms to, to mock me all the days of my life <laughs> that I am a poser. But we all know what it's like to feel like you're the only one that doesn't have something. Am I right? I don't know what that feels like, to feel like you're the only one that, that doesn't have something or the only one that's not doing something. And you, you look around and you see that you're surrounded by people that have this thing or are doing this thing that you don't. And there's an immense amount of pressure in those moments to be like everybody else. You might not necessarily be unhappy, but maybe everyone seems to be doing a lot better than you. And so you kind of have this rising angst within you that's like, well, maybe I should do what they're doing. Maybe I should be like the other people. And we have that pressure every day of our lives as we look around at our world and the people that we interact with and the people that we work with and talk with and see on social media. And maybe we start to think, well, they seem to work every waking hour that they have. Maybe I should do that if I want to be happy and successful. Or they seem to be spending all their monies on, on all of these possessions that look amazing and cars and clothes and, and houses and phones and what, just whatever it may be. And may, maybe I, I need more of that. Or maybe people seem to have this status and because they have this status, they're happy and they're satisfied and I don't have that. Maybe I need that. Maybe I need to think the way that they do. We all know what that kind of feels like. And as we come to the middle of the book of 1 Samuel, God's people, the people of Israel, were actually feeling that exact same pressure. 
They were looking around at every other nation around them, every other country, every other military power, and they noticed they had something that the people of Israel did not. They had a king. They had a human being, a leader, a warrior that was a king over their nation. Israel did not have that. In fact, they had never had that, even since the very beginning. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God was their leader. God created it that way. He says, I will be your warrior. I will be your defender. I will be your provider. I will give you everything that you need. You don't need a king. And yet Israel looks around at what everybody else has and says, well, but they have one. And they kind of mock us that we don't have one. And they have a, a mighty warrior and a leader that goes before them and fights their battles and defends their name and protects them. And maybe we need that. Even though for hundreds of years, God's fulfilled that role perfectly for them. He's delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He's provided food for them miraculously as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He's delivered them into a land that he promised them. He's given them victory over vastly superior opponents. Israel does not have the advantage of great weapons or military skill. Every nation that they go up against, they should lose that fight, but they keep winning. And in fact, every time they've trusted in the Lord, they've never lost. And yet, as they look around to the nations, they say, well, maybe we're missing something. We need a king like all the other nations. And so they come to their leader, Samuel. He's their spiritual leader. He's the judge of Israel. And they tell him, we need a king. Even though God has shown us time and time again, he's the one true God. There's no one like him. Even though time and time again, he's shown us that he's good. We need a king like the nations. And so they ask their leader, Samuel, for a king like the nations. It was too, too weird for them to not have a human king. They wanted someone tall and handsome and strong and impressive, a military hero, rather than just having to tell the nations, yeah, our leader's invisible. Because that's kind of embarrassing when the other nations are like, well, we got this king right here. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong, he's a great warrior. Who are you going to put up against him? Uh, well, our, our God, he's, uh, he's invisible. He fights for us. You can imagine the pressure that you could feel in that moment. And so Israel says that enough is enough. We need a king. We need to be like the other nations. And so Samuel, the leader of God's people, is frustrated by this because he knows that God's been a good God and God is the one true God. And so he goes to God and says, God, what's the deal with your people? Are we, are we going to do something about this? Because they don't want you anymore. They don't want me anymore. And God tells Samuel in an encouraging word, he says, Samuel, it feels like they're rejecting you because you're their leader, but really they're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as the king over them. And in this moment, we see the essence of what sin is. The essence of sin is rejecting God as king. That's been what sin has been from the very beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 3, after God created the world and everything was perfect, 
He gave Adam and Eve everything they ever needed. They lacked nothing. There was nothing wrong with the world. There was no injustice. There was no sin. There was no hurt. There was no pain. There was no sickness. Everything was perfect. Perfect relationship with God. He gave them everything they needed and said, don't eat from one tree. And Adam and Eve said, we don't like you being the authority over us. We can decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We can be our providers. In essence, they're saying, you're not a good king. We can be better ones. And from that moment forward, every single human being has been a sinner by nature and by choice. And it's the essence of what our sin is too to this day. Even though God has revealed himself to us, we reject him with our sin. And you say, well, I don't know that God's revealed himself to me. Well, the Bible tells us he's revealed himself through creation. And as we look around at creation, we see some of God's attributes, his power, his goodness, his generosity towards us, his creativity. But he's also revealed himself to us in his word of what his own character and his nature is like. God has revealed himself to us with our sin, we've chosen to not listen to it. To say, no, no, we'll be, we'll be God instead. We'll be king instead of you. We will be the authority. We will be the ones in control of our own lives. We don't need your wisdom. We don't need your commands. We don't need your provision, God. We can do it. And the truth is, every single one of us is like the people of Israel in this story right now today. We are choosing for ourselves a king. There is no one exempt from this. Everyone is choosing for themselves a king. The question is just which king is it? What is your king? Who are you following and who are you trusting in for safety, for hope, for meaning, for salvation, for joy, for comfort? Who is your king? A king is someone or something that we trust in. And so for you, maybe it's a career. You have an idea of a certain level you need to get at in your career. And if you can get there, then you'll be happy. Then you'll have meaning in life. Then you'll be successful. Then you'll be safe. Then life will be worth living. Or maybe for you, it's a spouse. Maybe it's a spouse that doesn't exist yet. Maybe it's the spouse that you do have, but it's all about pleasing them or securing them. If you could just have a great relationship with a spouse, then you would have meaning in life. Maybe for you, it's finances. You were just hoping to get to that place one day where you never have to worry about that. If your finances could be secure, if you could have an abundance of wealth, you would never have to worry again. In essence, you would be saved. You would be safe. You would be worth something. Maybe for you, it's health. Your health is your king. You serve your health all the days of your life because if you have your health, you have everything you need. Maybe for you, your king is just vaguely the future because the future will always be better, right? Just keep going because things will get better. Maybe for you, it's an education. If the world could have the right education, everything would be right. Everything would go well. No one would suffer no one would sin against one another. No one would hate each other if we were just educated. Everyone is serving a king. Everyone is choosing a king. Everyone is trusting in someone or something for hope and salvation and meaning. 
everyone. No one is exempt from that. And many of those things are good things. That's the deceiving part of it. Many of those things are great things. But none of them can bear the weight of being king. None of them. They are the blessings, many of them are the blessing of God's kingdom and his rule and his reign, but none of them can be king. And so the people of Israel are asking for their own king, much like we do all the days of our lives. And God tells Samuel, well, tell them then what, these, what this king will be like. Because maybe if they know what it will be like, they'll remember that I'm a better king. And so he tells Samuel to give them a warning. Tell them what the king's going to be like. And there's this one verb that is ringing over and over as Samuel tells the people what the, this king will be like. His name will be King Saul. And it's this verb, take. That is what this king will do. He will take and take and take and take from you. Did you catch it? He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take the tenth of your grain. He will take all of your servants and the best of your young men. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. God tells Samuel, go tell them the kind of king that they're seeking after. All he will do is take from them and leave them feeling like they are his slaves. As if he owns everything. In essence, telling the people, you think that this will make you stronger by having a king, but actually it will make you weaker. You think that this will make you more free, but actually it will enslave you. And it is the same for our kings and our sins. The book of John tells us that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It is not as, as, as if it says everyone who sins, some of you are slaves to sin and some of you are just able to keep control of your passions and desires. No, the word of God says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Because sin promises freedom and joy and happiness and comfort, but the dirty secret is it never delivers on the promises. It always leaves you saying, well, pursue a little more. Try a little harder. Go a little further and then you'll find what you're looking for. But the goalpost keeps moving and it leaves you enslaved to your own desires. We think it will be freedom, but actually it's enslaving because it doesn't give, it takes. It takes from us again and again and again. In fact, Romans chapter six tells us this. Romans 6 verse 20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That means this, when you were slaves to sin, you couldn't be righteous. You couldn't do good because you were enslaved to sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The book of Romans tells us this. That when we sin, we are slaves to sin and all it produces is death. That's not, what it, that's not what it told us. That's not what it sold us on. It didn't tell us it was going to take more from us. 
But that's what sin does to us. In fact, it tells us in that verse that sin is so enslaving, we cannot even long for the very thing that we need. We think that by rejecting Jesus as king, we maintain our freedom. We'll get to choose how we want to live. But actually what happens is sin deadens you over time so that you can actually no longer long for what you need most, which is freedom and forgiveness and provision from a good king. And so God tells Samuel to tell the people, warn them what this king will like. It will, he will enslave them. He will take from them. But he gives an even greater warning in verse 18. It says this, in that day, when you finally realize that, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And herein lies the greater warning. Not that it will be frustrating for you and the kings that you choose will take from you. But the greater warning is this, is that if you choose to reject King Jesus, you will find yourself in a place separated from God and unable to be rescued because you have rejected him. And herein lies the greater warning. Your sin separates you from God. And this is a serious problem because we're told time and time again that God is good. And we like that truth. Our world would even agree with that truth. Yeah, God is good. Whatever God you, you follow, yeah, that God is good. But that's actually a terrifying sentence. God is good because we aren't. And if God is good and we aren't, we have a problem. If God is good and he loves all things that are good and as a good and just God hates all that is evil and yet we are not good, that's a problem for us. We are not good. We're told we're good. In fact, most human beings in the United States would say, I'm a good person. The problem is the Bible would disagree with you. There is no one good, not even one and we actually know this, but we've suppressed that truth because it makes us uncomfortable. Let me give you a quick example. I'm sure many of you have, have at some point in your life, um, had to buy a car or at least help purchase a car or go with someone to buy a car. A, just honestly, in my opinion, a horrible experience all around. I hate buying cars. It's the worst. But I want you to imagine for a second, you go to a dealership and you walk up to a car salesman and you're already on defense because you know they're selling you something. And I want you to imagine that this car salesman talks up this car to you. He talks about all its features and about how good this car is and how much horsepower it has and all the bells and whistle it whistles it has. And you start to think, okay, I could see myself in this car. It seems like a nice car. The price seems reasonable. And then he tells you this, well, it's a, it's a really good car. The only problem is everything on it only works about 60% of the time. You'd be like, um, okay, I thought you told me this was a good car. Yeah, yeah, it's great features, amazing. The engine works beautifully. The air conditioning, the sound system, it's all fantastic. It's just everything only works about 60% of the time. So honestly, most of the time you drive it, it's gonna feel awesome, it's gonna work, it's gonna be great. And you would feel like, well, how about the 40% of the time when it won't work? You would look at this car salesman and you'd say, this is not a good car. I don't want this car. I'd rather have a car with less features that works 
100% of the time. That's a good car. We understand that. We would never call that kind of car a good car. But we do it with ourselves. We say, you know, I, I know I mess up. I know I, I, know I sin. I, I, I know I do bad things and I think bad things and I, you know, I sin against God. And, but, but, but overall, I'm good. If we wouldn't call a car good that works 60% of the time, why would we call a human being's moral record good? Where if we're on a 60%, we don't hit 60%. No one is good. In fact, scripture echoes this. Romans chapter three says this, none is righteous. And he anticipates us saying, well, what, what about, he says, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We say we're good because we just give up and like to grade on a curve. But God doesn't grade on a curve because his justice is too important. Because he loves goodness too much. We would never look at a judge and call a judge good if he was, um, if he was judging a murderer and said, well, I know you murdered someone, but the rest of your life, you're kind of a good citizen, so we'll let this go. We would say, no, that's a bad judge. That's a judge that does not love justice. And so we have a serious problem because God is good and we are not. And the problem gets worse because we are told that what we deserve for our sins is the wrath of God. That God has wrath for sins. Now we are told almost every day in our culture that there is no anger or wrath mixed in love. We are told that true love says, do whatever you want. And I'll stand by and support. That's what our culture says. Our culture says love is always supportive, always affirming. There is no wrath mixed with love. Friends, that is a lie. It is precisely because God is love. He does not have love. He is love that he has wrath. The more you love something, the greater capacity you have for wrath. The most simple way to understand this is to look at a parent with their children. It is precisely because a parent loves their child fiercely that they have wrath towards anyone or anything that might be trying to harm them or hurt them. And God, because he is love, is infinitely capable of wrath. He hates sin because sin is the participation in the destruction of human flourishing. It is the destruction of all that is good. And God loves all that is good. In fact, we should come to a place of saying, what kind of God would God be if he did not have any wrath? He would not be good. And we're told in the scriptures that his wrath is this, is giving human beings what they want. 
that the wrath of God is giving human beings what they want. So in essence, as human beings reject Jesus as king again and again and again and again, eventually in God's wrath, he says, okay, here you go. This is what you choose. which is ultimately the great warning of rejecting Jesus as king is that there is a real place called hell, which is the absence of God. And it is what he gives to those who reject, the, reject him. In essence, he gives those that reject him what they want. An eternity without him. Because he sees in those that reject Jesus you would rather have darkness than light. Not only is the wrath of God giving, what human, giving humans what they want, it's also what we deserve. Romans chapter six says this, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Here's what that means. What you and I have earned through our rejection of Jesus is the punishment for our sins. It's death. Whatever the law requires, we owe. And the greater the person you wrong, the worse the punishment is. You know this? If you threatened your neighbor, you would get in trouble. If you threatened the president, you would get in more trouble. Because the more important the person is that you wrong, the greater the penalty is. And God is perfect and holy and just and good and no one else is. So sins against his holy name, the Bible tells us the wages of those sin is death. And so we're left in this place. I'm feeling like, well, God is good and we are not, so we have a problem. We deserve the wrath of God. And so the question is, how can there be reconciliation? I thought Easter was supposed to be happy and good news. Why are we talking about wrath and sin and all these things? Well, it's because the cross makes no sense if you don't understand those things. How can there be reconciliation with God if this is the situation? And friends, that's the good news of the cross is that Jesus shows us he's a different kind of king than all the ones we choose to follow. In fact, look at with, with me at John chapter 3. Maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible. We're less familiar with the verses around it. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave. Notice that verb. How it's different than the one we saw here about a king taking. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not receive the wrath of God, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But we see in these verses, Jesus is a different kind of king. He is not a king who takes and enslaves. He is a king who gives and sets free. That is the kind of king Jesus is. And we see it most clearly in the cross. In the cross, Jesus comes down to earth as the eternal God and he takes on human flesh to be our representative. And he lives a perfect life. He actually is good. 
He lives a full perfect life and then he is crucified on the cross. And that is not just a result of just some unfortunate situations. This was the eternal plan of God. That Jesus would go to the cross not to suffer a brutal physical punishment, but Jesus would go to the cross to receive the wrath of God for our sins. What you and I earned, our wages, Jesus came out of love to say, I will take what you deserve. Even though I, I am truly good, I don't deserve it, I will take your place. And he receives the wrath of God for our sins. And he pays the debt that we owed. Mark chapter 10 says this, this is the mission statement of Jesus. For even the son of man, the perfect, eternal, all-powerful king of the universe, even him did not come to be served. He did not come to take, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give, to pay the price, and the price was his own life, his blood. He said, I will pay the price. I will receive what you deserve for your sins. King Jesus, who could have come to take and take and take everything from us, it's all his anyways. Instead, he came and he gave. He gave all of himself, purchasing salvation, not for everyone, but for everyone who would believe. For those who would not believe, what it said there, you remain condemned because you don't believe in the one that paid your debt, so you will pay it. But for those who believe, will be saved. And so here's what Jesus does on the cross. Here's why it's good news is because Jesus takes what only we deserve so that he could give us what only he deserves, which is perfect relationship with God. No more sin to separate us from a good and, and just and holy God. That is the good news of the cross and what we celebrate today on Easter is that Jesus did not stay dead because anyone can come and make claims. But Jesus made the kinds of claims to where if he stayed dead, he would be a fool. He would be a liar. He would be crazy. He would be a joke. None of us should be here. But through the resurrection, through rising from the dead, Jesus proves what he said. He proves himself to be a king, a true king, a set-apart king, a triumphant king, a generous king, a good king, a forgiving king, a loving king, a king who came to give instead of take, a risen king. And in his resurrection, he proves that the payment he made on the cross actually went through. The debt that you owed, I paid it. And in my resurrection, I prove that it went through. The check cleared. It wasn't on credit or on loan. It's cleared. It's paid in full, which is why on the cross, Jesus said in his last words, it is finished. The work necessary to save you from your sins has been done. But only for those who believe. 
Just like how a criminal walks free after paying punishment. Jesus walks free from the tomb because he already paid the debt. It's done. And he is alive. He is risen. And he shows himself to be an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom. He's the kind of king whose kingdom cannot be taken from him by death. Every other king in the universe, when he dies, he's done as king. His kingdom is passed on to someone else. That never happens with Jesus because he has now ascended back to heaven. And here's why that's important. Jesus needed to ascend back to heaven after rising from the dead. And why is that? Well, it was because first he descended to get here. God came down to rescue you. I love Bonnie's prayer at the beginning. God was not a distant God who just waved a flag and said, this is the way, just walk this way. He came down to you and me to rescue us. He did not yell at us and say, work harder, be better, be more moral, help people in your life and I'll love you. No, he came down to save us and to pay what we owed. You see, in every, every other religion in the world, you must ascend. In every other religion in the world, you, the message of, of salvation for, for every other religion is you must ascend you must achieve something in order to receive the reward you want. You must ascend to a place of enlightenment. You must ascend to a place of nirvana. You must ascend to a place of moral purity, of moral goodness. You must ascend to a place of deep devotion and commitment. And if you can achieve that, then you will be saved. It is essentially a message of do more, try harder, be better, climb the ladder. And our sinful flesh likes the challenge because we want the credit until we realize we can't. And that's why Christianity is good news because it's the one message that says, that is not saying ascend. It's the one message that says God descended to get you to pay what you owed. And if you believe in him, he picks you up and carries you. And he helps you to ascend to the father. Ascend to eternal life. You don't deserve it, but you go on his merit. And so for those who would repent and believe, there is salvation, which is what Romans 6 said, right? That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It is a gift it is not a command. It is a gift for all who would repent and believe. If you will turn from your sins, if you will turn away from your kings that you've chosen and repent and believe, anyone can be saved. All who would believe. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you look like or what you've done. It is every ethnicity and class and economic tier. It's every level of sinner. And no matter where you come from, no matter how messed up you feel like you are, it, the message is for all who would believe. It is for all that would turn from their kings, repent from those things and turn towards Jesus. It is for those who would abandon all hope in morality. 
Those who would abandon all hope in religion, in passion, in devotion, and say, I can do nothing to save myself. Jesus has done it all. And place all your trust in him. And the Bible tells us something amazing happens. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, there's a great exchange that happens where Jesus takes all of your sin, which is what he was doing on the cross. He takes all of your sin and he gives you his righteousness, which means the message is not believe in Jesus and you can have all your past sins forgiven and then just try to be a good person the rest of your life. No, no, it's better than that. It says, have all of your sins forgiven, past, present, and future, and receive the righteousness of Christ through faith, just through trust. Believe in him. Now God will look at you and say, that's my child. They're righteous in my eyes. They're perfect in my eyes. Not because they live perfectly, but because I've given them my righteousness. I've given them my record. It's good news. God gives the people of Israel this warning saying this is the road you're headed down. You're, you're rejecting the one good true king. And the same warning is for us today. And the truth is there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You are either for him or you are against him. There is no middle ground. You say, no, I'm just kind of indifferent. I don't really care either way. People can believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus. That's up to them. Indifference is being against Jesus. You are either for him as the king or you are not. My wife and I are coming up on our, our 10 year anniversary this summer, which we we're so excited about. If you've ever been to a wedding, you know one of the most important aspects of a wedding is the vows, where the husband and wife promise themselves to one another. Right? The, 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 whoever is officiating the ceremony will say something like, do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others and be faithful only to her for as long as you both shall live? And I was asked that question when I was marrying my wife. And I can imagine the shock on all of your faces if I had said, I, I don't know, I'm kind of indifferent. I could go either way. I mean, sure, yeah, some days I'll be for her, she'll be mine, only her. Some days, I don't know, maybe I want to keep my options open. I don't want to be so exclusive. That's narrow-minded. All of you would say, bro, you're either her husband or you're not. She's either yours or she's not. You're, you're, you're giving all of yourself to her or you're giving none of yourself to her. There is no middle ground. And the same is true with Jesus. There is no indifference. If you are indifferent towards Christ, you are against him. If you are against him, you're against him. If you are, yeah, Jesus, but also there's many other gods to follow. There's many other kings people can follow and be saved. You're rejecting Jesus. He claims to be the only way. So if it's Jesus and you're also against Jesus, you are not for him. And those are not my words. Those are Jesus's words. You are either for me or against me. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter seven, some terrifying words is that when he returns, there will be some people that come to him and they will say, Jesus, did we not do all these things in your name? 
Aren't we going to be saved? Aren't you going to welcome us into heaven? We were good people. We went to church. We sometimes read our Bible. We were generally kind to people. And Jesus is going to say some terrifying words to many. He will say, I never knew you. Which is a terrifying statement that there are some of us who think we're following Jesus and we will find out we never knew him and he never knew us. Friends, I hope that that's none of us here today. I hope none of us have to hear those words from Jesus. I never knew you. I'm going to tell you this because I love you. You will be miserable if you reject Jesus. I don't... I, I don't say that to get any credit. You, you probably won't like me for saying that. I'm saying this because I love you and God wants you to hear this. If you reject Jesus, you will be miserable. But even more than that, you will be miserable for eternity because you will have eternity without him, which means without any goodness without light, without love. And you are either for him or against him. And I pray and hope that you hear the call of Easter that if you are against Jesus, if you have never repented and believed in Jesus as your king, you do not have to stay in a place of wrath. You don't have to stay there. You will only stay there if you choose to stay there. For some of you, my words sound like nonsense and I plead with you to see Jesus and what he's saying and what he's inviting you to because the truth is you will eventually see it one day, but it might be too late. And you will remember these moments where you heard the gospel. But you said, no. You said, I want, I want my king. It's better. Friends, you can turn and repent and believe in Jesus and be saved, not by your own merit, but by his. In fact, Isaiah chapter 45, there's an invitation that says this, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He will save all who come to him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10 tells us that for those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look to him. Come to him. The one who knows what you need. Come to him, the one who promises life and joy and rest. Look to him. Come to him. The one who's given everything for you and stood in your place and offers you salvation and rescue and hope. The one who died in your place and purchased your forgiveness and longs to bring you into his family. Look to him. Not, don't look to the world and all of its kings and all of its trinkets. Look to him and be saved. And you know the reason why our church celebrates Easter with 
gusto and passion is we're not celebrating saying, yep, look at us, we're saved and everyone else isn't. Look what we did, look what we accomplished. No, we celebrate because we say, none of us deserve to be saved. None of us earned this. None of us could have done this ourselves, but Jesus did it. To him be the glory. And this is the business that God is up to right now of sending this message out. He's patient because he wants you to repent and believe. And he's saving sinners and he's making us new creations. And there's an invitation to all of us this morning. Let's pray together as we close. Let me invite... um, Aaron and Karina and Sarah E back up and Kent. I'll just give you a moment just between you and the Lord. He knows your thoughts. He created you. There may be some of you this morning right now that know that King Jesus is calling you. I'm not interested in convincing you to follow Jesus. That's not my job. My job is to tell you what he's done for you and call you to repent and believe, but that has to be something you choose. And I think for some of you, you might be feeling right now the Lord is calling you to repent and believe. He's calling you to turn away from your kings that you've been following and repent and believe in him as the one true king, to give up your efforts to save yourself and to trust in him. And if he's calling you, you know it right now. And the Bible tells us there is no magic words. There is no magic prayer to pray. He awakens faith in your heart and calls us to simply believe. And so if that's you in this moment and he's calling you to faith, believe, trust in him, surrender to him, confess your sins to him, trust that he paid the price for your sins. And by believing he did that and believing he rose, you'll be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your message of good news. For those of us that have repented and believe, we need these reminders because every day we start running after other kings and we need to again repent and believe that you are the one true king. You are the one we need. You are not impressed with our morality or our righteous efforts. Those are filthy rags to you. You call us to put our faith in you and receive your righteousness. Lord, it's good news that you're a risen king, that you are not dead. Thank you that you are saving sinners. Lord Jesus, we want to respond and worship to you. So let's stand together and let's sing and worship Jesus for what he's done.